Okay, we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews here on the listener's commentary on the New Testament. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. This resumes the explanation side of things here in the book of Hebrews. We've talked about how Hebrews works with giving some explanation, and then it goes to exhortation, and then it back to explanation, and then some exhortation. Well, here in 4.14 through 5.10, we have wrapped up a long exhortation section, and now we are beginning to explain some things again. And the main idea he's going to make in this section is that the son, who he's introduced as the son of God, became a high priest like Melchizedek. We'll talk more about all of the details of that, in some in this session, some in future sessions, but that's the main idea of this explanation. And let's just set that in context. The previous couple sections were a long extended exhortation. That ran from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. And so a long extended exhortation section. And that flowed out of Jesus's humanity and Jesus' role as high priest and his superiority to Moses, which we looked at in chapter 3, 1 through 6. And the idea was that because of who Jesus is as the Son of God over God's house and as our high priest, the author of Hebrews then urges the readers to be diligent to enter God's rest. That's the way that long exhortation section worked. Well, now here at chapter 4, verse 14, down through chapter 5, verse 10, we come back to the theme of Jesus being the high priest. It was mentioned in passing before, but now he begins to develop this more fully. So 4.14 through 5.10 develops this high priesthood theme. Then it breaks off again in 5.11 down through 6.20 for another lengthy exhortation theme. So 4.14 through 5.10, explanation, high priest. 5.11 through 6.20, lengthy exhortation. And then in 7.1 and following, we come right back to this high priesthood theme. In fact, we come right back to where we're going to leave it off at the end of this section with Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So that's the way the, the next several sections work. We need to see that because this high priesthood theme that it begins to develop here and then picks up full force again in 7-1 and following, that high priesthood theme of Jesus is going to be central to much of the book of Hebrews from now in 4.14 all the way through chapter 10. So it's really important that we recognize how this section works. All right, so chapter 4, verses 14 through 5.10, he begins to take this high priesthood of Jesus theme and develop it more fully. And he does so in verse 14 by saying, Therefore, therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. And so in uh, the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, he mentioned Jesus as high priest, broke off with that to say, because he's our high priest and because he's the Son of God and because he's superior to Moses, we need to pay attention and don't make the mistake of that wilderness generation who didn't even follow Moses and thus miss God's rest. Well, our high priest is greater than Moses and we need to make sure we listen to him. Now he comes back to the high priesthood theme here in verse 14 uh, and is going to develop that fully. Notice he also refers to our high priest as Jesus 
the Son of God. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he'll explain what that means in later chapters when he talks about Jesus' offering and the true tabernacle and all of that. So hold that thought until he explains that for us. But he describes our high priest here with the name Jesus and the title Son of God, both of which he developed in the first few chapters of the book. So chapter one, he emphasized that Jesus is the Son of God and he is superior to the angels. And then in chapter two, for the first time, he uses the name Jesus, and it was the name associated with his incarnation, his humanity, and specifically with his suffering. So now, in his role as high priest, well, that entails both of these, his humanity and his suffering, and his glory and his exaltation. And so he is Jesus, the Son of God. That's our high priest. And it's both of those that make him such a great high priest. And so we have this great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And because of that, we need to do what he just said in the long exhortation section of chapter 3, 7, all the way down through 4, 13. And that is, let's hold firmly to our confession. Jesus's high priesthood, in other words, is what really urges us to be faithful to him clear until the end. And so with that, then he goes on to show how great Jesus is as a high priest and what kind of high priest he is and how that should motivate us to remain faithful to him. So verse 15 says four. Notice explaining. He's going to amplify this idea of how great a high priest Jesus, the son of God is for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Notice the, the, the way it's worded. We do not have one who cannot sympathize. In other words, we have one who can sympathize is, is the force of that. And so Jesus, as our high priest, can actually sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he's Jesus, a human being. Yes, he's the son of God, but he's also Jesus, the one who has suffered. And so we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are and yet without sin. And so the reason our high priest Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses is because he's been there, he's experienced it, he knows what it's like to live a human life. He has been tested and tried and tempted in all the ways that we are. And that word tempted has that sense. It, it's the literally the idea of tested, but it can mean tested in a sense of a trial. Let's use that way, for example, in the book of James. Or it can be tested in the sense of a temptation. Jesus has experienced all of that. He has, he has suffered and he has died. And so he's been tested and tried and tempted in all the ways that we are. And yet, without sin, he was perfectly faithful to God. Now, this raises a question for us that I want to briefly just ask and answer. And that is, did Jesus experience every possible temptation? Is that the point of this phrase? And the answer to that is, well, not exactly. Like, Jesus was never married. And so he never experienced what it's, uh, what it's like to have marital temptations or trials or testings, right? Um, he didn't experience certain temptations that are specific to various specific times in history. For example, he never had internet temptations, right? And so did Jesus experience every temptation? Well, no, not exactly. But that's not the point of the phrase. The point of the phrase is that he experienced the full range of human experience and thus human trials and human temptations, and he didn't give in. 
he was, as the text says, without sin, which implies that being tempted is not itself sinning, right? Like temptation is not sinning. It's when you yield to temptation, give in to it, that you now have sinned. And Jesus, even though he was tempted and tried in the full range of ways that humans are, he never sinned. And so the result of Jesus dealing with real temptations is that he's actually able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands life in this world. He understands what it's like to be hungry. He understands oppression. He understands greed and power and pride and lust and envy. He knows the frailties of humanity in this world because he's been there and he's done that. He's not just some ivory tower deity who has never experienced what it's like in this world. He was willing to actually get his sandals muddy and his hands bloody in his quest to redeem and restore all people. And so what's the implication that the author of Hebrews then draws out from that? We'll look at verse 16. He says, therefore, in other words, because of the kind of high priest we have, because he understands the frailties of humanity in this world, therefore... Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. So based on the fact of the kind of high priest we have, we can actually approach the throne of grace with confidence. That word approach literally is draw near, and it's the phrase that's used of the priest repeatedly in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for Uh, approaching God with a sacrifice, approaching God with an offering. We see this, this is what the priests did. They drew near to God. And so now what the author of Hebrews is saying, we all can do that. We all now can draw near like priests in the tabernacle, like priests in the temple, temple. We have this freedom to draw near to God because of the nature of our high priest. And he says what we can draw near to is the throne of grace. Uh, That's a unique combination of ideas there, throne and grace. A throne represents majesty, kingship, authority, power. That's what the throne represents. And yet this specific throne is marked by or characterized by grace. And grace is the characteristic of God that shows kindness and even favor to people who don't deserve it. It's the idea of stooping down to help someone who can't help themselves. And so the throne of grace speaks of God as the kind of king who who stoops down and lowers himself to help people who need help but aren't able to help themselves. And the author says that we can approach or draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And this word confidence literally is boldness and frankness. It was regularly used in the ancient world for like freedom of speech, the freedom to speak frankly. In a biblical context, one biblical illustration that comes to mind for this is Queen Esther approaching the the throne of Ahasuerus, Xerxes, and saying, if I perish, I perish, because she technically needed an invite to come in, but she's going to approach boldly and frankly. Well, in our case, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to worry if we're going to be welcomed or received between before the throne of grace, because we have a high priest who has opened the way for us, so we can draw near freely, frankly, openly, boldly. And so we have this open relationship with God to draw near, to come near. 
And he says, um, we do that with the, the goal that we will receive both mercy and grace to give us help at our moment of need. In those moments where we have need, we can draw near. And what we'll find is God's mercy, his compassion, his willingness to take pity on us and our need for help and his grace, his willingness to stoop down and help us when we can't help ourselves. That's what we'll find when we draw near to the throne of grace. So the author of Hebrews at this point has introduced Jesus to us in his role now as high priest. He's described that he is a gracious and merciful high priest, that he understands our frailties, and he's opened a way for us to have this free and frank and open relationship with God. That's what he has done here at the end of chapter four. Now, where he'll go in the first few verses of chapter five is... He'll continue to explain Jesus as high priest, and he'll set that in the context of high priesthood in general. And specifically what he'll help us understand is what the role of high priest is and how Jesus became a high priest. All right. So the first 10 verses of chapter five continue this by showing us here's what the role of high priest is and here's how Jesus became a high priest. He says this in 5.1.4. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of people in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That is, he's setting Jesus' high priesthood into the context of the Jewish high priesthood. And so he says that high priests in general are taken from among men. That is, they're human beings. And he has a specific role on behalf of the people And his role is in things pertaining to God. In other words, he has this kind of mediatory role between people and God. He he acts uh, on behalf of God and on behalf of the people as sort of a, a mediator between the two of them. And his purpose, his job is to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And there may or may not be much distinction between the word, but the reality is some of the offerings in the Old Testament described, for example, in the book of Leviticus, were more like gifts, thank offerings and peace offerings and those sorts of things. And they didn't specifically atone for sin. They were more ways to express your worship to God. But And then there were some offerings that were more specifically designed to deal with sins. Um, and so... There may be a distinction between there. It's just a way of describing all the offerings of the Old Testament. And so the high priest serves in this mediatory role, and his job is specifically to bring gifts and sacrifices that deal with sin. And in doing this job, he can relate to people because he's taken from among men. He's human too. So verse 2 says, he a high priest, a general high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, with people who have gone astray, people who have done wrong. He can deal gently with them since he himself is also clothed in weakness. And because of it, that is because of his own weaknesses, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for himself as well as for the people. So he's a human being. He deals with human weaknesses. As a result, It says here, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. That is, literally, feel in the midst of. In other words, he knows what it's like to live in this world. He gets it. And so he can have the right balance of emotion towards those who go astray. 
not condescending, not arrogant towards, not over harshness and anger, right? He gets it. He has the right balance of emotions towards those who are ignorant and misguided. He feels right in the midst of, he has the kind of the, the middle balance of the proper emotions because he knows what it's like to live in this world. And not only that, he even has to offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as for the sins of the people. At a purely human level, since he's a human being, the Jewish high priests had to offer sacrifices for his own sin. Um, that's how identified they were with people. In fact, look at Leviticus chapter 16, where it describes the Day of Atonement, 16.6. The first thing he had to do was he had to offer a bull for the high priest's sins. And in a more general way, his sins were acknowledged in all of the regular daily, weekly, and yearly animal sacrifices for all of Israel. So, so he is totally identified with the people. So what, what the author has done now is just given a brief summary of the role and the work of the high priest. Well, how does someone become a high priest? Good question. So look at verse 4. He says, And no one takes the honor for himself, but receives it when he's called by God, just as Aaron also was. Someone becomes a high priest because God appoints them to that role. The first high priest was Moses' brother, Aaron. And then the lineage of the high priesthood descended from him. And so all subsequent high priests come from that line. God appointed them to that role. Now, the author of Hebrews knows that there's been some historical developments that have happened, right? And and that the Romans have gotten involved in the first century and they've kind of toyed, along, toyed around with the high priesthood. But the fact is, is the way it was supposed to work was it was appointed by God. And even though the Romans have gotten involved, the line of high priesthood still comes from the line of Aaron according to God's appointment. That's the point. This is God's design. God chose the lineage. And so God is the one who appoints the high priest. But here's the problem when it comes to Jesus. Jesus isn't from Aaron's line. So how did he become high priest? So here at this point, the author of Hebrews begins to discuss that. And then he'll come back to develop it more fully in chapter 7. But for now, what he shows us is that God appointed the Messiah to the high priesthood, but to a high priesthood from a different line. And so he says in verse 5, so too Christ, that is Messiah. So too the Messiah didn't glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but it was God who said to him. And so the idea of glorifying himself is exalting himself to the position of high priest, right? The Messiah didn't do that. God actually said some things that appoints him to the role of high priest. And so the author quotes two Old Testament texts where God declares something about the Messiah. The first one is from Psalm 2-7. In fact, he's already quoted this line before in chapter 1. So God said of him, you are my son, today I have fathered you. We looked at that in chapter 1. He quotes it again here. Why quote this passage again here since it's primarily about Jesus' kingship? Well, probably because both Psalm 2, this one, Psalm 2, 7, and the next quote he's going to give from Psalm 110 were viewed as being about the Messiah. So they're linked together as being messianic psalms, making declarations about God's anointed. And both begin with clear declarations 
about the Messiah's status, and those declarations are by God himself. This one from Psalm 2-7 that he just quoted, you are my son, today I fathered you, emphasizes that God has declared him to be king. But that's not all he is. He's also a high priest. So the author of Hebrews quotes another Old Testament text in verse 6, a text from Psalm 110, about how the Messiah is going to be a priest. So he's king, according to Psalm 110 um, and Psalm 2-7, but he's also a priest. And so he puts these two texts together to say he's the son of God, the king, and he's also a priest. And so the next quote from Psalm 110 mentions a king who is also a priest and says the Messiah is a priest, but he's from that new line, that other line that's not from the line of Aaron. So he just quoted Psalm 2-7 at the end of verse 5. Now in verse 6, he says, just as he says in another passage, here's another declaration by God about the Messiah, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is from Psalm 110, verse 4. And so he puts these together to say he's a king and he's a priest, just like Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest. Now, he's going to explain more about Melchizedek in chapter 7, so we'll deal with the details of the whole Melchizedek thing there in chapter 7, all right? So hold off on that, but suffice it to say at this point that Melchizedek was a figure who appears in the book of Genesis who this particular psalm, Psalm 110 verse 4, refers to and says the Messiah is going to be like him in some important ways. He's going to be a king, he's going to be a priest, Um, And that's the key idea that the author of Hebrews wants to develop. So, Jesus, as Messiah, did not appoint himself to the office of priesthood. Just like God appointed him as king, God also declared that he was going to be a priest there in Psalm 110, verse 4. Then the author of Hebrews leaves the details of that whole Melchizedek priesthood aside, he'll come back to that chapter 7, he sets that aside for now, and he focuses on Jesus's earthly experience that led to his appointment as high priest. So verse 7 says, in the days of his humanity, that is Jesus's humanity, the Messiah's humanity, that is in the days of his flesh, his incarnation, when he became flesh, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the days of his humanity, He offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. So he he focuses on this idea of the incarnate Son of God, the Messiah in the flesh, the Word dwelling among us as flesh, offering up prayers and pleas, prayers and supplications, if you will. And although uh, Jesus' whole life involved hardship, suffering, and prayer, it's likely here in this context that the specific focus is on Jesus' prayer and pleas in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. Notice it says he offered up loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And so we're probably focusing on Uh, Jesus is praying in the garden before his crucifixion. For example, Luke 22, uh, 40 through 44, where it describes that and describes the emotional turmoil and the agony and the, 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 really the stress that Jesus was under is emphasized there in Luke's account of it in Luke 22. That's what we're focusing upon here. 
And it says that he was heard, verse 7, the last phrase, and he was heard because of his devout behavior. In what sense was Jesus heard? I mean, he didn't get saved from death, right? Like he actually died. So in what sense was Jesus' prayers heard? Well, in the sense that God raised him out from the dead. And in doing so, he vindicated him as Messiah, demonstrating that he was in the right and thus righteous. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.4 that it was by virtue of the resurrection that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. Death wasn't the final word. Resurrection was. And so even though he died, he was still delivered out of death um, by virtue of the resurrection. And so it's likely in that sense that the author here of Hebrews means, and he was heard by virtue of his devout behavior. And that word devout behavior is only used here and in 1228, Hebrews 1228. And it refers to like piety. In fact, in 1228, it's uh, translated reverence, but it refers to like godly fear and religious carefulness. That's the idea. And so because Jesus faithfully and devotedly honored God by his life, God heard his prayers, delivering him from death. And then the author of Hebrews goes on in verse 8 to say this. He says, and although he was a son, right, he was God's son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Now, let's not forget the flow of thought. He's introduced Jesus as the Son of God and a high priest, a high priest in a different order. He's tabled the order of Melchizedek for a second. And now what he's doing is describing Jesus's experience that led to his appointment as high priest. And so it was through his sufferings and it was through his agony and it was through his praying. It was through all of that, that, that God appointed him as the source of eternal salvation. Now there's a couple phrases here that uh, can cause us trouble unless we hear them in context. One is he learned obedience, and the other is having been perfected. And the idea of those two phrases of learning obedience and having been perfected isn't that he was disobedient and flawed before his sufferings. The idea is, in fact, the author's already said he was without sin, right? Like he was tempted in all things as we are and without sin. So the author doesn't think he was disobedient and sinful or flawed prior to this. The point is that it was through the testing of his suffering that his obedience was brought to completion. That's really the idea of having been perfected, that it was brought to culmination. It was brought to its, its climax, its culminating moment. It was brought to fullness. And so his testing brought greater obedience and deeper character and brought all of his loyalty and faithfulness to God to its culmination point. And it was through that experience then that Jesus, the Son of God, the high priest, was appointed to this high honor of being the source of eternal salvation for those who are loyal to him and obey him. In other words, this path of suffering was the path to his appointment of high priest. And so he ends this section in verse 10 by saying, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And 
Again, more on that in chapter 7. But it was through this path of becoming human and suffering as a human and dying as a human and then ultimately culminating in resurrection as a human. It was through this path that he was designated by God, appointed by God as high priest. No, he didn't exalt himself to the honor. Um, He was appointed that by God himself, even though it's not according to the order of Aaron, but the order of Melchizedek. Now, before we leave this section, let's just wrap this up with just just one simple reflection, and that is this, that uh, Jesus is both a king and a priest who knows what it's like to suffer and still be faithful. He gets human life. He gets betrayal. He gets rejection. He gets misunderstanding. He gets uh, temptation from, you know, the temptation to glorify himself. He gets the temptation to shortcuts to God's kingdom, right? Look at the temptation stories in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, right? He gets temptation. He gets suffering. And he can sympathize as a result. And as the author has said, he is therefore ready and able to help. He's opened the door to an honest, frank, real relationship with God, who is a king, who is also full of grace. And so, Jesus, he can help us be faithful and he can help us obey because he knows how to do that. He's been there and he's done that. And so he can come alongside of us, not only to sympathize, but to strengthen us and to lead us into obedience and to faithfulness because he's been there, done that, and done it with perfect success. And therefore, he's a good high priest. He's a wise king, and he is merciful and gracious to help us at the moment of our need. All right, thanks for tuning in to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. Our goal is to provide clear, down-to-earth Bible teaching that helps you follow Jesus right where you live every day. I like to call it Blue Jeans Theology. And the listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible because of the generous support of people just like you. So if you're one of those who make this ministry possible, can I just say a huge thank you to each and every one of you for your support. And if you've been impacted by this ministry and want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, and setting up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation right there. Thanks a ton for your support.